Hope you are doing well today. Starting any type of brand, but particularly fashion, beauty or jewelry brand requires that the entrepreneur is aware and manages well the communication process this industry depends on. Social media and influencers have become an important part of this process. So I've decided who better to talk to but one of the original influencers, Andrea Torres, also known as Style Scrapbook. She's a dear friend of mine and we actually met after she wore a handbag of mine and the rest is history, as they say. I hope you will enjoy the conversation. It was very nice to catch up with her after many years. I'm now in Paris. She's, as you know, in Amsterdam. And it was, in my opinion, a very interesting conversation where we talked about the dark side or the negative side or, or you know, the downside of how the industry can be and how social media has become today. So I really hope you will enjoy the conversation and talk to you soon. So they asked me like, oh, Neri, how did you get your website? How did you decide because you were wholesale and how did it all happen? And when I'm giving like presentation at universities, I'm like, well, it starts with style scrapbook. Oh, really? Yes, because if you remember, you you basically wore the blue bag and you call it yourself in your blog. You recently did a post that said, I went through a blue face and I still love wearing blue cobalt blue, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you had this bag, our Missy bag, but it was in, yeah. in blue. I, I'm going through a blue face still. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I love blue too. <laughs> and this was a letter that I personally selected and you, you basically wore the bag. But at the time you were mainly wholesale business. And I only had a holding page with my email. And after you basically put it on your blog, and at the time, this was like, what, eight years ago? It will be like more than that. I just suddenly got flooded with hundreds of emails. Can I have one? Can I have (laughs) hundreds of emails? And they were like, where can I buy this bag? You don't have a website. I found this is an email. There's only an email, a holding page. And I was like, okay, I need to have a website. To sell to consumers directly. Oh my God, that's crazy. I didn't know that you didn't have a website. Yeah, I didn't have a website. And I think, and then, you know, when we started to collaborate and everyone thinks like it was this, it was a big collaboration, but many people were assuming you were our model. Oh, really? Yes. My friends who are not exactly in the fashion world, they were asking me, did you hire her as a model? I'm like, yeah, I know she's tall and she's influencer and they they because you know in my circle not everyone is in fashion they will ask me what is influencer yeah really and that was even before the term influencer i think that was like yeah exactly this is like i call you the original influencer actually oh wow thank you (laughs) well you started when you started it was just uh blonde salad no, Kiara started two years after. Kiara started in 2009. I started in 2007. There was a few in, in LA, a couple in Sweden. I think the Swedish are the ones who started like this fashion blogging two years before me. Like, so this is, I started self-scrapping in 2007, which is like 14 years ago. It's crazy. That's amazing. But then in Sweden, my one of my best friends, Carolina uh, Storm, who's Carolina Engman back in Majai, she started two years before me. So 2005, like this, oh but this gosh. movement, re- yeah, this is like, I mean, back in 2007 in eight and nine, it was just a group of maybe 20 girls that we were doing this globally. Not that many. It was very small. I mean, that were big, you know, like known. So yeah, that was like a really, I'm like a very, not emotional. Yeah, I'm very emotional, but I always like, I'm very nostalgic. So like, I think about those days and I'm, and I'm always like, oh God, those were like yes. really- Guys, yeah. And what made you go, you know, big? Was it one particular thing or was it over time? Well, I started the blog in 2007, not knowing it's not that I didn't know it was a blog, it's that they didn't really exist as a format. Like it, it wasn't about sharing your looks, it wasn't like a look of the day. 
So I wanted to work in fashion and I wanted to be a stylist. Like my goal was to be a stylist, work for a magazine and do the photo shoots and like, you know, because back in the day it was like the traditional jobs that you have in the fashion industry. This whole digital phenomenon didn't really exist. So I wanted to be a stylist. And when I moved here, they told me you're never going to work in fashion because you don't speak Dutch. So I was like, okay, well, I left my university in Mexico. I left my family. I left my friends. I left everything to pursue this dream. And I'm getting told I'm not going to be able to make it. So I was like, what am I going to do? So I thought, you know, like being the stubborn, like really like daydreamer, like that I was, well, I still am, but I back then I was just like completely fearless. I thought I was going to practice and writing some like little trend pieces and like fashion pieces on the blog. But thinking this was for me, you know, that it was like me and the blog, it was like I was doing it in Word. Like you were doing Microsoft Word, but it was on the format of a blog because you could upload photos and stuff. I had no idea people could see my stuff, no idea. So I was like, it was kind of training myself how to do fashion journalism, a little bit of trend pieces so that I eventually I could send this to a magazine and be like, look, this is what I can do. And on the other side, I was doing, you know, I was an assistant of stylist every now and then. So I would talk to the assistant of the makeup artist, the assistant of the photographer. I'm like, hey guys, you want to build a portfolio? Let's get together and we help each other, which it's kind of, it, it happens in the fashion industry. The assistants, you build your portfolio by helping each other. You know, nobody has a book. So everybody's kind of like doing stuff for each other. And I was doing that on the side. And then the blog started getting comments and I was like, where are these people finding me? I had no idea. Wow. And that's really how it kickstarted. I started getting comments. And then eventually uh, my best friend, who's Richard, you know him. Yes. He, he told me, Andy, why don't you, I mean, you love putting these outfits together and like you always like, you know, get looks in the street and stuff. Why don't you post about your outfits? And then my followers also started asking, but I thought, no, this is not about me because this personal stuff blogging didn't really exist back then. And I was like a bit, not shy, but yeah, like I didn't want to be on the blog. Mm -hmm. And then I tested this out and it turns out that instead of, I don't know, five comments, I would get 15. And I was like, whoa, this is really something. And that's how really the look of the day kick started. And I think that that was it. I was, I was doing the looks of the day. But I was doing it in a way that, okay, you guys, I cannot afford Chanel. So I'm going to teach you how to make this look with affordable brands. And I was doing that, you know, high street, really curating stuff from the high street and making it look, you don't have to have money to have style. And that really appealed to my followers. And then the DIYs came in after that. And that I think really catapulted me because I was the only blogger doing DIYs, like the do it yourself. For me, I remember very early, uh, you know, I didn't uh, find you on a blog, but on lookbook.nu, I think. That's oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lookbook.nu. And I was, <laughs> I, I was saving your looks because I was like, oh, my God, this girl is wearing H&M and Zara and it's looking very stylish. This is so cool. And, you know, I think people who are listening to us, they they probably will think, come on, <laughs> like, but at the time, like you are saying, these things didn't exist. So it wasn't like the term influencer. There wasn't this big group of people putting Zara and H&M and affordable clothing together, but making it look very stylish as if it's, uh, you know, very high end. Just the styling of it, I thought it's very, very cleverly done. And, you know, these very early days, and I think uh, it's, it's quite interesting how it all started. Yeah, it's really cool because also like this is something that I really, my husband now and my friends are always saying like you have this radar. It's like whenever you walk into a shop and they all want to go with me because they know I don't, I don't bullshit around at a store. I'm not like, ah, oh, let me see. No, I like, I have an eye. Like I'm like this, 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 I read and I always manage to pick up the stuff that I know in my mind, how I'm going to mix it so that it can never, you can never tell that it's like a high street brand. And also things that people don't, usually don't even see. But like so a lot of my followers were like, oh my God, like I saw that dress and I never in a million years would have picked it up and I'm going to go get it because of the way I saw that you can style it, you know? So I guess that's also helped. And your background, you can tell us a little bit about your background. Did you have any formal training in, in styling or I know you grew up in Mexico. You lived in Montreal, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. Then Amsterdam. 
Can you tell us the journey that you were on that led to Style Scrapbook? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Mexico and I am from a very, a family of very tall people. We're very, <laughs> very tall. So it, my mom really struggled finding clothes that fit us. And ever since I was very little, I was very, like very in tune and like very attracted to aesthetics and like making things look more beautiful. I was obsessed with making mood boards, making vision boards. I was writing journals. I was very attracted to the aesthetics of things. I would just look into like, you know, I, I have to make things improve, look better. I always done that. And then when my when I turned seven, eight, nine, my mom really just couldn't find pants that fit me and my sister because we were so tall. Everything was like on like above our ankle or higher. So my my favorite thing to do was to go to the fabric store with my mom and I would like, you know, raid the store and be like, I want this in pants. I want this fabric for a skirt. And she would make them for me. And I would sit next to her and I would watch her do it. So I learned to sew very, very young. Yeah. And I think that's really what kickstarted my passion. Like it was for me, I knew that I could create something from nothing and it really would suit my personality, my style, and it would make me feel like a million bucks. Right. So for me, that passion for fashion was not like, oh, I want a new bag. It was more like, well, this is doing something inside. This is making me feel better. This is like improving, you know, how I feel, how I look. And it was something very, very exciting as a child. It just took in my head all the time. I said, I want to move to Paris one day. I'm working fashion. Everybody looked at me like, okay, she's nuts. You know, like friends in school that were like, okay, what is she talking about? Um, I always had this in the back of my mind. And then when I said, I want to study fashion design, everyone was like, oh no, like you live in a small town in Mexico. What are you going to do with that? You're going to end up making quinceañera dresses. Quinceañera is like sweet 16 in Mexico where you make the, where this like puffy dresses, which there's nothing wrong with being a quinceañera dress designer. But what are you going to do being a designer here? I always knew that I wasn't going to stay there, right? I didn't feel like I belonged. I, I always felt like I was from a different planet. I was taller than most people and just a bit of an outcast. I bullied at school. I was part of the track and field team, which was, uh, I was a high jumper. I was national champion. So I was very focused on sports. I was competing on a national level and I competed also in the U.S. in Duke University, North Carolina for eight years, actually. And then when I competed in the U.S., they wanted me to go to Duke and start training and competing for the U.S. in the Olympics. I didn't but for me, Whoa. yeah, a lot of people don't know. Actually, my yeah. mother was like, you have to put that on your CV because it's like, you know, being an athlete, it's like something that really people, people really feel like really intrigued and, and, and excited about because like it shows that you have discipline and so on. But I was so in love with athletics, but it was like a duality in my life because I, I was really bullied at school because it's like, it's not like in the US or in other countries where you're like an athlete. That's really cool. It's like, oh, you're in the athletics team. Like that's a bit geeky, you know? And it was fine when I was in secondary school, but then as I started getting into high school and wanted to go party and all my friends had boyfriends and stuff. And I was like training every day. And I also didn't want to compete for the U.S. in the Olympics. I wanted to compete for Mexico. And then eventually I, I started dating my high school boyfriend and I was like too in love and too like caught up in the high school life that I just dropped out. Then I moved to Montreal and that's when I met Richard. Uh, and then he's like, well, you know, I'm in Amsterdam, my parents have a house and uh, they're going to move to Peru. It's like three floors. You can be here if you, you can stay with me and my brother if you want. And I thought, okay, Amsterdam is really close to Paris. I see. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I started like really connecting the dots, but I was, I was doing interior design in Mexico in between Montreal and Amsterdam. There was a lot happening. I was going back and forth and I was really not happy going back to Mexico because I was like, oh, I already see this whole new world in Montreal, these whole new possibilities. I was for the first time, you know, on my own and thinking, oh, really, the world is my oyster. I can do a lot of stuff. And I going back to Mexico for university, I felt like I was caged again, you know, and I was doing interior design because it's another one of my big passions. But I did it because everyone's like, no, what are you going to do with fashion? Like, no, 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 no. So I kind of shied away. I, I freaked out and I thought, okay, well, the next big best thing is interior design. And then I did that. But 
fashion I mean I was making clothes in my instead of my homework you know I was like going back to my dorm and making a dress and I had to do an architectural architectural planning and I'm like I mean I would do it but like it was I couldn't it it was really not my uh, thing so yeah fashion has always been like around me the whole time and then I moved here and then you know the story about how I started the vlog which was because I couldn't get a job that's right I remember I yeah. remember when we talked in Istanbul. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this whole door shut in my face. I mean, many doors, many doors. And I was this expat child. I was a child when I was here, when I came here with all these big hopes and dreams and stuff. And I was like, no, 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 no. And I thought, now I think what drove me, like what here drove me and pushed me to do what I did? Because right, like as you grow, grow older, you would think that you get more brave. I think it's because we know better. So we're like, mm, maybe I shouldn't do that because I know what <laughs> can happen. If, and when you're a teenager or like a young in your young 20s, you're like, what can possibly go wrong? <laughs> and you just push and push. So now I'm thinking, oh, I'm really glad that I had the guts to do all of that stuff because it really like changed my life, right? Yes, and you were telling me, I remember this, and it surprised me as well, because, you know, you were saying, I went door to door, I applied to hundreds of companies, all in the fashion industry, and I was rejected even just to sell clothes, like just to intern, just yeah. to the sales floor, I was rejected by brands that you wouldn't even have heard of i was surprised and but you persevered and you were you didn't give up and i think it's funny how i have when i'm teaching my course i when i teach entrepreneurship i have this figure of a man it just imagine a head all around him is no 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 but Mm. inside him i drew yes and i call it the entrepreneur's mind because no matter how many times you hear no and we all know that in the beginning, it's uh, it's very, very challenging to do anything. And you will hear, you will get a lot of rejection, even like someone at a job he's doing, he or she's doing very well, he can, he or she can get rejected. And, but you have to keep going. And I know it can be very disheartening in the beginning, but you know, that's how you achieve success. It's just like this perseverance and not accepting no for an answer. And if there is a no, you find another way, just like you did. You started blogging, basically, which led to you being style scrapbook. Yeah. No, but also I think that the part of the, the no's process is such a huge learning curve. If you go into some, and, and that's, I think that's the most challenging thing that I see with our industry and the, our, in the generation that is coming that they're now seeing like, oh, these girls are really big on Instagram. Cool, I want to be an influencer. And they think that it happens like this. Exactly. So you you have a generation that is like, I, it wants everything very fast. They want to be CEO really fast. They want to be a, a 100K followers on Instagram really fast. So then you, you don't go through the process of like really developing a skill, sharpening your pencil, right? Of like, okay, what am I really good at? What am I, you're just like, what? stupid content can I create to get as many likes as possible so I can get as big as possible and that's like really problematic that's right I you know Dory Clark she's uh, someone I admire very much she just wrote a book called the long game and in it she just talks about exactly that she's like this is not going to success doesn't happen overnight you know and she talks about her own journey where it wasn't until 10 years, 15 years that she saw success and she's very successful today, but obviously it didn't happen in the first two years, in the first three years. And you yeah. almost, like you said, you need, you need those difficult years. You need the challenges in the beginning in order to grow as a person, in order to learn the skill, sharpen your skill uh, yeah. and be better at what you do. And when the success comes, it has more longevity. It doesn't disappear because, uh, you know, the word easy come, easy go. So that's like if you can become an influencer overnight and if you are successful overnight and you become a CEO. I I sometimes have this with my students, by the way, they especially when they are very, very young in the very early days, they have the assumption that you could become a CEO or manager 
the second you graduate. And I, I sometimes think, oh my God, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that there's a problem with the industry right now. And I, from my generation of blogging, I keep talking about it on Instagram. Some people are like, oh my God, you live in the past, get over it. And I'm like, <laughs> no guys, because you know, what's the purpose of what we're doing anymore? And you know, you really have to think about that. And also if you don't go through the process of the notes, if I would have gone to the second or third magazine and they would be like, okay, well, you're going to be the assistant of the stylist and you're going to, eventually maybe I would have become a stylist at the magazine. And that's great because that's what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I had no idea that there was a possibility of become one of the biggest bloggers in the world because it didn't, it didn't exist. I had no idea that was a possibility. So if I wouldn't have gotten those rejections. I would have never started the blog, which then took me to give a TED talk. You know, I was the first fashion blogger to give a TED talk, to have a, two different TV shows, to, you know, do every, like everything that I have been blessed and honored to do in my career, if I would have had a yes back then. So like sometimes those no's are signals of the universe telling you, this is not where it goes. This is not where it goes. This is not where it goes. So you have to like, Try to find a little bit, yeah. a little bit of a side road. How did Style Scrapbook become Style Scrapbook? Because uh, you started it because you couldn't find a job. What challenges did you face in the early days as a blogger? And how did you get to work with the big brand names? How did the process happen? Well, in the beginning, it was just more of a like a hobby, a side hobby. And I was, but a side hobby that was taking a lot of time and yes. a lot of effort. Although I honestly never even saw it as an effort because I loved what I was doing so much. We were shooting looks of the day every single day. I'm not talking about going outside and doing a couple of Instagram photos. I'm talking about an actual proper, I would think about the outfit. I would think about the location. I would think about, so I would do all the art direction, um, all the styling. I would do the makeup. I would do the hair. I would be the model. We would shoot the photos and I would go back and I would do all the post-production by myself. So I learned to do coding. I learned to do become an expert in post-production. I had to do everything. So a lot of people don't think about that. They think like, oh yeah, you're shooting a photo on Instagram for Instagram and you're taking your iPhone and you know posting mm -hmm. it. Back in the day, there was a whole, you know, a whole production. Every, I was doing it every single day for like almost eight years. So in the beginning, it was more like a fun. I love doing it. So it was like a fun thing. And then eventually I got a job as a visual merchandiser. So I was doing that on the side and I would come home and I would just do, you know, shooting the, my lunch break and then, or shoot like many looks on the weekend and then post them during the, the week. And the blog started growing and I, it was like a really natural pace because it was back in the day where it was just like, who are fashion? And magazines would talk about us, but almost in like, who are these people? Are they coming to get our jobs? And I was like, you didn't give me a job. So that's why I'm doing this, you know? Um, it was really challenging in a way that we had the industry against us because we were put in a box. We're like, these people have no knowledge of fashion. These people, who are they even, you know? They're just thinking they can come and take our jobs. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're, we're here trying to democratize fashion. Because we're trying to tell people, you don't have to wear Chanel to be stylish. We're trying to show people how to style one blazer five different ways. We're trying to, you know, that's it. That's the, the word. We're trying to democratize fashion. And you don't have to have connections in order to be in fashion. Exactly. You know, like I thought, okay, so I would have had to be born being cousin or son or daughter. I mean, daughter or uh, friends of somebody that maybe worked at Vogue to get even an internship at Vogue or, you know, that's how I used to work back in the day. Now we didn't have that. Me and my peers like that started this movement. So we started our blogs. This was our online digital property. So in the beginning it was like that, but like, I didn't even care. Like we didn't even care. You know, we were just doing our thing and we were just like, you, we just kept going until there was a point where there was a shift where it's like, magazines started to write about us in a positive note but this was like maybe three four years later and there was this event and this was already maybe four you know five years after I started called Firenze Forever which was 
an event in Florence for the uh, store Luisa Via Roma, which is like a multi-brand store in Florence. And they were so smart because I think Italy was one of the first markets that really started to capitalize and like really be like, okay, this is something, this fashion blogging is something, you know, like we, we have to do something with this. So they would pick, you know, 10 of the best fashion blogs in the world or 20 very, very selected and like curated group of people. They would fly us to Florence twice a year, one in, once in the winter, once in the summer, take us to the store and then plan these photo shoots, you know, for all of us. And we would like, we're able to, each blogger, we were able to curate what we wanted to wear, style ourselves. They would provide makeup artists, photographers, everything. We would hang out all of us together. We would shoot. Everybody had their time slot for shooting. And then we create this amazing content for our blogs with amazing, you know, Lanvin, uh, Chanel, Cavalli, like all these amazing designers that we didn't have access to. They gave us access for that weekend. So then the blogs were like amazing, you know, because it's like this editorial content. And then at the same time, the Luisa Villaroma was getting all these huge presses because like, you know, Kiara's there, Andy's there, Ami's there, Jules is there, Carolina's there. Like it was like that, that group, you know? back in the day so I think brands started looking at this and thinking hmm okay this is really something um so a lot of brands started to really get into this game and that's really how the brand collaborations between bloggers and brands kick started but I I don't know if I can give credit to Lisa Villaroma I don't know if they were the first but definitely in my memory they were one of the ones who really kick-started this movement of working with bloggers in that format yeah, and I think the brand saw they can capitalize on the bloggers, on the influencers. And I remember very well, I know your point about are they coming to take our jobs because there was this criticism of the fashion shows, the front rows now being with bloggers, having influencers in the front row instead of editors. And it was this very threatening thing in the very beginning. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I remember those days very well. I do understand it though, to be honest, because yes. now it's a really th- tricky one. I was talking to Richard the other day about this and I thought you have the editors that, you know, like, or the buyers that are really like working in this industry. They know, they know their stuff. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we arrived and it was like, they're like, who, who are these people? And we were sitting from row and they had no idea who we were, but like some of us did have a background in fashion or did have, did know what we were doing, you know? We had audiences, which was what's important for the, the, the brand. Otherwise, we were, if we didn't have the audiences, we wouldn't be sitting front row. That's, that's the thing. Like at some point in Style Scrapbook, the numbers of the blog were bigger than it, Vogue Italy. You know, I had okay. more people following yeah. me than the actual readership of Vogue Italy. So like that was to put into perspective how huge blogs were at, at the time when blogging was booming. But now when I see about, the new generation of influencing and content creating where it's about these little dances and I'm like why are you showing like am I learning something am I what is the purpose of this content I see these people taking the front rows I feel like hmm I know how the editors felt yes I see (laughs) now you feel you are in their shoes (laughs) yeah (laughs) where do you see the future of uh, bloggers influencers going well, that's a very uh, a tricky one because, you know, I've been doing this for 14 years and I didn't stop at all. I think 2017 was a really difficult year for me because, uh, first of all, I started developing this pain in my arms and I didn't know what it was. So I went to the doctor and the doctor said it was carpal tunnel syndrome from like always, yeah. you know, because I was always working. That's what people don't understand. When you are a, you are a one man show. You have to run a website, run your social media. You have to know about digital strategy. You have to know about editing. You have to be, know about art direction, makeup artist style. And you have to know about all these different topics, which now is amazing because my CV looks like if somebody really is going to be like, she must be lying that she knows all of that stuff. But like, if you run a one-man show for 14 years, you're going to learn all these, you know, skills. But it was taking a toll on me because it was physically like now showing in my hands. So the doctor said, you need to take a little break and you cannot, you know, try not to type for about two months. And I was like, wow. are you kidding? Like to, to tell an entrepreneur that re- like relies on posting every single day for a living that they cannot use a computer or the phone. It's like, 
I mean, for me, that was like, what? I didn't know how to react. It was devastating. So my father passed away in December of I'm 2016. Thank you. It was, it was, it was so difficult because it was at the height of my career. I was at the Victoria's Secret fashion show the day before in this, in the carry suite in the Plaza Tene hotel with the Eiffel Tower. And I was like, I mean, you need to be able to get into the, be invited to the Victoria's Secret show is like, not everybody gets invited, you know? So it was like, kind of like a really a high point for my career. The next day I fly to New York, I land, I get a call from Richard. He's like, your dad passed away. I don't want you to find out from Facebook. Oh my God. So it was like horrible. But that kickstarted something in me. I started getting terrible anxiety. I think it was just so much stress that just started, you know, like coming out. Mm-hmm. And then three months later, I met Arno. So in those three months, I was so stressed out. I I had Richard had to take me to the hospital in New York Fashion Week because I thought I'm getting a heart attack. I had this yeah. arm, I had this chest pains. I couldn't breathe. I thought, I, I mean, my dad just passed away two months ago from a heart attack. I must be getting a heart attack. He takes me to the hospital and he's like, they do all these tests and they're like, oh, you have really bad anxiety. I was like, what? I didn't know the term anxiety in like a, you know, I've heard of it, but I'm like, what do you mean I have anxiety? And that's when it became very present in my life. So they said, you have to really take it easy. And that was another one of, you have to take it easy. And I thought, how am I going to take it easy? I'm my own boss. You understand that lady? Like, I can't take it easy. <laughs> so I started to take it easy. And then I met Arno, which was amazing because I think if Arno would have experienced my life as it was five months before, yeah. of like flying all over the place every three days he would have been like what is this girl doing like I can't be in a relationship like this so I mean it was really it was really like that period where I was going down from my you know like high roller coaster and then last year at the beginning before COVID started February COVID started well really really bad in March so in February one day I woke up and I thought I can't I can't exist I can't get up I can't I feel so, it's like the light went off. And I already had felt really weird for the previous weeks. And Arno said, I'm so worried. I think you're getting a burnout. I'm so worried. I think you're getting a burnout. And I don't, I come from Mexico. Like the term burnout, it's not really a thing there. It wasn't when I was a teenager. Yeah. It was like, it's a very, I don't know, first world, I want to say, but not really. I mean, it happens to everybody, but it was more like common that you talk about it in first world because you have you're able to take time off and then your employer is like oh you're off for a burnout okay see you in three months I was I didn't I wasn't really you know familiar with it so one day I realized what a burnout is I couldn't move I couldn't I didn't have the will to even like walk to the bathroom it was terrible this was on the 16th of February and then COVID hit and it was the most devastating for me, terrible time in my life because for almost a year, a year to a year and a half, even to this year, I thought, you know, being in a burnout is a very, very difficult, bizarre situation because my, my life coach explained to me as if like you put yourself through so much stress that the stress becomes chronic stress. And when you don't listen to your body and the signs of like, stop, but your brain is like, if you're not going to do it, I'll do it for you. And he just presses a button and he's like, off. Yeah. And you're off. And you don't understand, you cannot see any, like, I, I couldn't, you know, when people are like, oh, so much that you have achieved in your career. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I couldn't see it at I all. I know. I know. I, I keep nodding. Yes. I relate to what you are saying. The thing is, like, I am recently, very recently getting out of it after the wedding. Luckily, I mean, I'm, it, it, it was like the burnout, COVID, the wedding. And I thought, am I happy in this industry as it is right now? Yeah. And, that, and that's like a very long explanation of what, what's next for this industry. The problem is that during COVID, the industry shifted. Mm-hmm. Already Instagram, with Instagram, the industry shifted. It was no longer about creating purposeful content. That's in like, you know, creating an article on the blog about like, you know, like, I don't know, articles about trends or what, how to wear this or how to, where to buy the best vintage in Amsterdam and stuff like that. Instagram turned the industry into like a rat race for content, a rat race for likes, a rat race for engagement. 
And everybody jumped on that train and everybody went at full speed. And it wasn't anymore about that, the purpose of your content and what you could say to your audience. It was about brands wanted to know how many likes do you get? How many comments are you getting? And you're thinking, followers do you have? Exactly. So I'm like, okay, um, my following, my audience is super loyal. And I've been growing this audience for 14 years, but now everybody gets probably an average 0.4% of their following are, is actually looking at their content because of their algorithm. So it just becomes a situation where you're just creating content constantly in hopes that your audience is going to see it. Hmm. And it is not, back in the day, I would know, I know if I wear this outfit, it's going to do really well. If I create this video, it's going to do really well. With the algorithm, it's a shot in the dark. You have no idea. So the industry right now is moving towards like just create as much content as you can to see if people will see it. And that's not the industry that I started in, Neri. It's not the industry that make, moved me, okay. that gave me light, that gave me passion, you know? So I'm really struggling a little bit because I'm not going to leave, obviously, but I miss having that purpose. I miss having that, you know, drive. And it's very difficult when... If I, if I now start thinking, okay, like I'm not going to start doing dances on TikTok. That's not who I am. Yeah. That's not the content I want to push out into the world. There's, if some people want to do that, that's fine. That's not what I want to do. So, you know, the type of content that I do, you know, you don't know if people are going to see it. So like, you feel like, do I even do it on the first place? And I'm in this like, kind of like dilemma mm-hmm. where I think I've learned so much throughout the past 14 years. I have so much skills that I have been able to adapt. Do I want to still do this or I do want to do Andy 2.0? And I have that, obviously. But now I started working with companies and started to do, you know, really put what I've learned into use and like help companies grow or help companies understand their audience or help companies in the creative side. And just, you know, get, give that step. It was so terrifying for me because everybody's like, but oh, you're Andy Torres, you have Instagram. And I'm like, me is not Instagram content. I am so much more things than just a content creation machine, you know? So where this industry is going, it's changing so fast towards a direction that I don't, for my personal content, I don't agree. Mm-hmm. You know, I recently read that Lush, the brand Lush, the cosmetic, well, they're the only cosmetics. They do all these like bath, yes. beauty. yes. The CEO said, we're out of social media. Arrivederci, we're sick of this. They said, we don't care that we're going to lose 13 million because you know the the leaks of of Facebook about the fact that it was really affecting mental health of teenage girls. And this came out and it's like, I don't want to be a part of this. Ciao, um, we're gone. So they removed all of their accounts. And I thought, whoa, that's really brave because I am out of, you know, like when I had the burnout, I disappeared for two months. I should have done it for longer, but I'm like, I've been in content creation mode for 14 years. If I leave, people will forget about me. Well, I, like, it's really a terrifying. It's, I know, I, it's, a, I really relate, you know, you are talking, I keep nodding because I'm struggling with very similar things when it comes to social media. So first with uh, Neri Kara, we have mm-hmm. now about 9,000 followers, but I don't post every day. And, you know, I was given advice. You have to post three times a day, this many stories, and it's exhausting. I mean, I of course, we can hire somebody. And then, and we did at some point, but it didn't feel authentic to me. And mm-hmm. that's not what I want to do. That's not what my brand is about. But yeah. you know, when I didn't post, like you said, when I didn't post for a long time, they said, oh, but is your brand doing well? Because you don't have, uh, you haven't been posting. I'm like, I'm pregnant. I have a baby, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm the one who posts on Instagram. So it's it's all me. And now with Moda Metier, I write articles. I am putting content that I believe in. But you, what you are talking about, this algorithm is an interesting one because I see that the, the views have changed, the likes have changed, and I heard that it's something that Instagram has been doing on purpose in order, oh, yeah. on, in order to get you to advertise with them. That's Yeah, of I- course. Yeah, because they saw this platform, and it's really sad because, I mean, I mean, I get it, it's a business, but it's affecting so many 
content creators affecting so many brands affecting you know everybody basically but also you know like it's so demotivating because you're you have your audience that really and also my audience my target audience is amazing because they've grown up with me so yeah. they're in the prime age range for brands to want to speak to because they're the the prime target audience because they have disposable income because they care about their skin they care about being stylish you know like it's a it's a great target audience the problem with that target audience is that they consume social media in a different way that really gen z consume social media so they look at content but they don't necessarily are liking and like oh beautiful they're not liking and commenting on everything so with the lack of like and comment the algorithm reads that as you're not interested so i'm not going to show you her content anymore and before they know it they don't get my content anymore you know um, so there's been that's how it worked and there's been people that have been very strategic about creating type of content for really young audiences so that their engagement and likes and comments really rise shoot up and it's doing really well for them but at the same time i am so stuck in my in my way of like i have this I was always like I'm not going to buy likes. I'm not going to I was always so in, in my moral high ground. That's how I am. I cannot change who I am just to like play the game. So I was like I'm not going to now start doing, you know, silly stuff or showing my boobs just for likes. It's not going to happen. Yes. You know? So I wasn't going to start doing content that was going to really appeal to thir- 12, 13, 14 year olds mm-hmm. because first of all that's not me. And second of all, that doesn't, it's not good for brands either because the brands that are working with me don't want me to push a, uh, I don't know, really a Cartier bracelet, you know, because maybe they can buy it in 20 years. But it's very interesting that brands look at numbers without really analyzing who's actually behind those numbers. And the algorithm just creates this huge mess because it's like it's it's a smoke it's a smoke curtain and it's interesting because i saw sometimes in my discover page i get these reels that people really just post on tiktok and reels at the same time you know just to create double content for both platforms and there was this girl dancing and i have to like always put not interested because i don't want to see 14 year old girl dancing you know but what was interesting about this is that these girls did a video dancing and he says, we wanted to make an experiment. We post the same video, the same song. And in one, we really did the choreography. And in the other one, you we are like, Mm-mm. just barely doing the bare minimum because we want to see which of these two videos performs better on, on reels. One was perfect and the choreography was perfect. And the other one, they were just standing like with the same song. Well, the one with the bad song did like 2.5 million views and the other one got 140K. I mean, for me, this is the crazy thing. Like someone dancing, okay, I'm 43. So maybe it's the age, maybe it's my gen. I just don't get this. People dancing, getting these 2 million views, 3 million views. What's the purpose of this? You yeah, know, I'm not- for me, it's like <laughs> the fact that there are these views and the followers because you made a silly dance. I honestly do not comprehend it. Maybe I'm too old. I, I just don't get it. I just, you know, for, no, I don't get it either. And I mean, the other day, Arno, because Arno's in VC, he's in venture capital and he worked, uh, he researched a lot of companies and he's like very into all that kind of stuff. And the other day he was reading a description of TikTok and yeah. he said, it's a, non-content platform or something like that meaning that it's a platform with a lot of content but that doesn't really have a it's just like random stuff like when you go and dump the most random like there's videos that are not even about dancing people walk into the camera do this and then that's it that was the video so that's what i'm struggling with social media right now because it started as this movement to really you know showcase talent so photographers or uh, chefs or stylists, you know, to really showcase your work and show the world what you can do. And I was just, what stupid thing can you do just to get as many views? And these videos of these girls, it just shows how the algorithm doesn't really favor good content at all. It's just so random 
because how can the random bad video got, you know, so much more views than the good one. So then as a creator, you get into this mindset where you're like, am I going to spend three days producing this concept if I'm going to not even be shown to anybody? And it just becomes really demoralizing. So I, and all my peers are in the same boat. Like I talk to my friends that are in the industry all the time and they are like, what, what's next with this platform? We're all upset. We're all like really bummed about this, but. I know it's very demotivating as a business owner as well. I'm in the same boat as you are. I'm uh, as a business owner. I was going to ask you when you said you are working with brands, many of our listeners actually have their own fashion brands or they want to start one. So my question for you would be, what advice would you give a business owner who wants to grow their audience? That's my first question. And the second one, can you tell me a little bit more how you help brands and how you work with them? Well, I think that, first of all, if you're a brand, you really have to divide and conquer. Like, don't put all your eggs on Instagram because, like, also the app, the platform is, I don't know how many, it started in 2013, I believe. Like, really, the kickstart. So it's almost 10 years old. Things change so fast in social media. So you really want to, you don't, we don't know where Instagram is going to be in five years or so two years. And, you know, we don't know. So a lot of, I see a lot of brands putting all their efforts into Instagram, into growing their Instagram and then the rest and, and now TikTok, for example. And then if anything happens to that platform, their whole livelihood is in one platform and it's gone. So mm-hmm. I think that really being strategic about which type of content you want to create and segregate that content into all platforms. Pinterest is a really great one, which is, it's been around for quite a while, but it's still a very, very active platform with a lot of inspiration. It has a lot of click through and also it it feels more organic. It feels more like you go in there and you really get all this like, you know, inspiration um, kick. It's, It's very aesthetic and you can create your own little boards and stuff. It's not just like, oh, you're not like that, or you're not going on that holiday. It doesn't keep confronting you of all the things that you don't have. So I think it's, you know, just segregate your content. Think about, for example, right now, Instagram is really pushing Reels because this is a competing product to TikTok. So what they, I mean, nobody knows outside of Instagram what they're trying to do because they're trying to change it every now and then so that we don't know what they're doing so that we are always on our tiptoes trying to figure out what type of content to make. But it seems like Facebook and Instagram are pushing video content a lot right now. So just really try to get right on that wave. And just, if you see that a lot of videos going on on your feed, okay, this is what they want now. So just try to to do more video content on Instagram and then kind of diversify your content into all different platforms. I think, you know, for me, I love the branding aspect. I love I love the strategy as well because obviously I've been my I've been a middleman between a brand and a consumer for 14 years. So like mm-hmm. for me it's it's just such a natural I have I have like a gut feeling when I sometimes a brand would come to me and they're like, "Oh, we want to do this campaign and this is the idea that I have." And I'm and I'm sitting there looking at this and I'm like, "That would never work." I know how to talk to the audience and I know how to make it seem appealing and you know interesting and and most most of all organic and because people don't want to be like this is the best mascara in the world they want to hear a story they want to hear that you're actually connected with the brand in some way that is actually something that you use so that that's the you know like I love doing everything from the actual art direction where I get a product and I think we're going to shoot it in this location we're going to do it this way all the way to, you know, how we're going to communicate it on social media. And I think that was, that's like the great thing about now that I'm getting my energy back from, you know, post burnout, post 15 years of career so far and trying to think of what's important to me and what I really want to just like, okay, that's enough. Because if I let this affect my mental health to the point where I got into a burnout, it's just not worth to carry with this anymore. You know, when I look at all that stuff and I really focus on the things that I'm really good at, that I really would pursue, want to pursue, it's really that. It's just being like, you know, the creative mind, our direction, creative direction and, you know, for brands and just really try to, you know, get hands on on all the creative process yeah. and how to talk to the audience. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's very good. So 
my son is also downstairs joining our conversation. That's why I <laughs> if anyone is hearing you. <laughs> I haven't heard him. Yes, I, I sometimes put the mute button on, so that's that's why. Mm. So thank you so much, Andy. I have like before we uh, finish off our conversation, I have these rapid fire questions for you. Are you yeah. ready? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite memory? My wedding. <laughs> uh, it was beautiful. I saw the photos. I got the video this morning. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see. <laughs> Three words to describe style scrapbook. Creative, playful, and... Oh, three words? Yes. Creative, I playful, and... Uh, can I say dream come true? Sure. <laughs> Three words to describe you. Daydreamer, driven, focused. Very nice. What keeps you motivated? Ooh, right now? <laughs> oh, this is really hard, you know, because with the burnout, oh, it really kicked me. It really kicked me down. But right now, what keeps me motivated is my creativity, I think. Nice. Uh, and what and who inspires you? This is going to sound really weird, but since I started working on my CV last week, all and all Andy inspires me. Ah. <laughs> That's, uh, that's yeah. really nice. And you, I need you... to go back to that. Yes. What's your favorite book? My favorite book? Right now I'm reading the one from Jay Shetty, which I love. Uh, the Guru. Yes. He's what is it called? But I know, the, I know the book you are talking about. I know about him. I never actually read one of his books, by the way. Yeah, he's, his latest book, um, Think Like a Monk. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> think like a monk. Because I'm like very, very much into like meditation and yoga and all that. I, during the burnout, I got into that, yeah. Your favorite time of the day? The morning when I'm having my coffee. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> what do you want to be remembered for? Uh, my perseverance. If you can give advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? There's going to come a point in your life where you're going to doubt yourself, but you have to trust that you have it in you to keep going. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Andy. Thank you. Hope you really enjoyed our conversation. If you want to find out more about fashion entrepreneurship, please check out my newly released book. And if you want any help or advice when it comes to starting a fashion brand, working with influencers or managing your social media, get in touch with me for a free discovery call. See you next week.